You're listening to the Volleyball by Design podcast. Today, we are going to dive into some big takeaways that I was able to get from our international coaching symposium out here in Canada. And these are some great takeaways that I think will help you in your gym. And it's a little bit of everything, a little bit of offense, a little bit of defense, but just some things that I thought were important. So I'm going to give you the main takeaways from a four-day coaching symposium that you can take back to your gym and apply right away. So it's an episode you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Coach Brian Singh, and after a number of years coaching competitive volleyball and as the head coach of the biggest college in Canada, I've become obsessed with helping coaches improve their knowledge and skills of the game by teaching them how to coach efficiently and effectively to ultimately reach their volleyball goals. I created the Volleyball by Design podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies so you can get clarity and apply what you learn right away. This is the Volleyball by Design podcast. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 157 of the Volleyball by Design podcast. How is everyone doing out there today? Another week of volleyball. Weather is amazing, getting nicer uh, by the day. And uh, I'm excited to jump on another episode with you all to, you know, try to deliver something of value. If you are a new listener, Welcome to the podcast. My name is Coach Brian Singh, and if you are a regular listener, as always, thank you so much for tuning in, where the goal, as every week, is to deliver valuable, tangible, step-by-step strategies that you can take back to your gym right away, and I think today is no exception, because today, I'm going to do a little bit of a recap, Um, I I guess I wouldn't call it a recap, but my main takeaways, so every year, uh, there's what we call an international coaching symposium that piggybacks onto VNL that uh, that it takes place in Ottawa, which is Canada's nation capital. And it happens once a year. It's it's probably I would say it's the biggest coaching symposium in Canada, from what I know. And it's it's not bad. So the way it works is for those of you that don't know, uh, the volleyball nations league takes place in many different countries uh, during the course of the summer when it's not an Olympic year, and on the back of the symposium, there are coaching symposiums. Sorry, in the back of VNL, there are coaching symposiums where the coaches from the teams that are participating uh, make a presentation. Generally, it's majority of the coaches that are participating will will do a presentation and you know cover a certain topic. So I uh, I didn't make it last year, but this year I, I made it, and I was able to take notes and got my takeaways. So I'm gonna if you didn't attend the coaching symposium. Uh, I'm going to share with you my biggest takeaway. So this is kind of like a, a little bit of a cheat here. You missed the symposium, you get it. You get it, all, all the major takeaways, at least that I took away, that will hopefully uh, help you in you know in your coaching journey. So we, there was a uh, was it three days, three days of coaches uh, presenting on all different things from defense, offense, uh, team building, setter, opposite, you know, all the different positions and things like that. Um, so let's start off with some interesting differences. That VNL uh, had this year, and a little bit different than normal volleyball. Uh, so the first thing that was really noticeable was no line officials. Yeah, I was I was wondering. I was like, what's going on? There was just a an R one and an R two, you know, up and down official, and there was no line officials. Um, and I actually loved it because what happened was the this was all done with cameras. So cameras were there was cameras situated on the on all the on all the the, the, the four sides. You know, one camera is watching the sideline, baseline on both sides. And uh, anytime there was a relatively close call, the 
R1, the up official, just looks at the iPad they have in front of them and they know whether it's in and out. It, it was actually amazing and how efficient that was. So, because you know how many times line officials and and not 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 to discredit them but it, it's hard when you got you know players that are serving over 100 kilometers an hour and hitting at 120 it's hard you might miss it especially if it's a close call so there was no debate on whether or not uh, a ball was in or out because they had the cameras and the cameras picked it up and there was they were good they were good to go so that alone that eliminated so many controversial calls that I've seen in the past and it was just so much more efficient and it didn't even take that much more time at all. It was very, very, very simple. I, I don't know. I absolutely love that. I think if, if the technology, as the technology continues to get better, I think we, I mean, I understand at the youth level, it's probably not not possible, but at the higher level, college, OCAA, youth sports, NCAA, all the different um, you know, post-secondary leagues, I think this is something that we should look into. Another interesting thing was there was a 15-second shot clock. This I found interesting because, you know, the whole point is they're trying to speed the game up. So once a point was awarded, a 15-second clock started to go. And then a player gets the ball. And then at the 8-second mark, then the official would blow the whistle to serve. So it kind of held everyone a little bit accountable. And it, it, made, it made it go a lot faster because, you know, they're trying to avoid players huddling after every point and having a, a long conversation before they serve. So I, I actually like that. I thought that was pretty unique. And 15 seconds is still plenty of time to get the ball and plenty of time to do your serve. But uh, it was really weird when, you know, the few games that I watched, it was really weird when um, the officials actually called an eight-second violation because normally you're not used to seeing them do that. But the clock was right there, so they had to do that. And then the other thing that I thought was interesting was the one timeout. Um, there weren't two timeouts per set. It was just one timeout per set. Now, mind you, they did have two challenges per set still. So the challenge system is still being used. And rightfully so, there were a lot of times where they needed to challenge. Um, so the challenge system was being used. And uh, I, I really, I thought that the challenge system is, is a great thing. I, I absolutely am an advocate for that. And it was actually really funny. We there was I'm trying to remember the games, but I think it was, it was Brazil. It was Brazil and Cuba, I believe. And... It was interesting. The coaches called for a challenge, and the challenge was actually unsuccessful. But the reason the challenge was unsuccessful was because they were looking at the wrong thing. So even with the challenge system, it's actually ironic that uh, it's they, they were still like looking at the wrong things to um, like they, you still had to like the captain still had to go over and plead their case. And I thought that that was really 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 interesting. So like for example, here here was a situation where there was a rally. There was a rally going on, and there was a net violation that was called or something like that. And they were pleaded that there wasn't a net violation called. And what happened was they they went back and they looked at the tape, but they looked at the wrong sequence. So a rally has bump sets, spike, bump sets, spike, bump sets, like over and over again. But they looked at the wrong sequence and made a ruling on the wrong sequence. And the captain went over and said, no, 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 no. You that that what you just showed there wasn't the wasn't the call that was actually the rally like the previous one before that and then they had to go back and they had to adjust and it was it was interesting so even with the system volleyball rally the the challenge system you still had to you know they still had to make sure it was the right clip they were looking at um and it, it was interesting to see and it actually happened twice in that game where the challenge was actually 
what, when they when they went through the video system and they made their ruling, it was actually the wrong ruling, and the captain had to go and plead their case, and then they made the right ruling a second time. So, yeah, long story short, that was uh, that was interesting. But let's go into some takeaways. I've been talking for a long time here. Let's go into some takeaways that I thought were were really important. Um, the first. The first, and these are a lot, mind you, you, you can take some notes because I'm going to talk about a ton of different takeaways, um, and I'm going to go all over the map here when it comes to the takeaways because I, I have notes written all over the map here, okay? So first takeaway, training the setter. Um, a couple of things I got that were really cool when it comes to training the setter. One, definitely train um, backspin on the ball. So don't just toss regular balls to the setter. Ha like toss a ball with some backspin and have the setter set the ball out of that because that could easily happen in a game when you know you're past you're digging a ball you're getting a service seal off a spinner so don't just have setters set balls that are clean have setters set balls with some spin on it i thought that was absolutely uh that was really unique um another really cool thing that i, I like them doing training the setter was having them dig and then toss a ball for them to set right away just that dig set, set sequence I thought was really cool um, to get them a chance to, you know, dig as well as set the ball right after a dig uh, because you never know, like just to train both at the same time because setters are going to be digging. Obviously, they're going to be playing defense as well. I thought that was really unique. Um, another really cool thing I thought that was interesting about training the setter, and this kind of goes to ball control, was uh, setters digging to themselves and then setting that first ball, and then getting another ball in after that to set the second ball. So just different variations when training the setter. So digging to themselves, so they dig, set that same ball, and then another ball gets tossed in, and then they set a second ball. And you can add a third ball after that, etc. So I thought that was really cool, digging to themselves, you know, getting the ball with a spin, and then digging, and then getting a second ball as well. So just understanding the digging and setting, that was really cool to see them work on that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, one of the things that they really put an emphasis on was that, you know, setting is, yeah, setting is setting, don't get me wrong, uh, but we ha absolutely have to be able to play defense as well. So making sure that setters are getting a lot of digging touches um, out of position one. Uh, another thing too, and, I, and this kind of tag, this tags along with any kind of defense was, you know, one of the coaches really, really put an emphasis on expanding a player's digging zone. So having athletes being comfortable with having a wider stance and taking up more area and being comfortable digging balls out of, you know, way out of their body. So having one hand, or sorry, both hands out really wide and being comfortable digging with one hand, you know, palms up, forearm up, and being able to get those touches and being comfortable doing that was really interesting because, you know, when they were doing demonstrations in there and they were kind of critiquing athletes, you could really tell the athletes that were comfortable digging in a much wider zone versus athletes that were comfortable digging kind of relatively close to their body where they feel comfortable moving. So being having that comfort level and ability to dig a ball that's much outside your body and expanding your digging zone uh, was a really big emphasis that they had there. And I thought that was really cool. And, and I thought that was important. Um, let's, uh, oh, another thing that was interesting too was, uh, let's talk a little bit about add a system hitting. So this is a bit more on the advanced side now, add a system hitting. But I, I, an interesting point. So let's start with where they want the add a system ball. In case, in case you're a relatively new coach, an out-of-system ball is a ball that is dug or passed into an area where the setter does not have all four hitting options. Generally, the setter is only going to have one or two options, being the left side attacker or the opposite hitter. Okay, It's a ball that's probably dug, dug backcourt, 
not going to have a lot of setting options. It's going to be a ball that goes to the pins. So with an out-of-system ball, you really want the ball off the net and inside the court, like well inside. You don't want it close to the antenna at all. Okay, so back in the day, like 10 years ago, when I was when I was being taught how to coach out-of-system hitting, you know, we were being taught, you know, get it, you know, like a left-side ball. Like get it high and in the left side zone so they can come outside the court and swing. And it was it was relatively close to the antenna. But we don't want that anymore. We do not want out-of-system balls being set, you know, well, close to the antenna. We want them set well in the court. You know, the, the general rule of thumb is a meter in, a meter off. Generally rule of thumb, a meter in, a meter off. And the, we even favor on the more inside the court because here is what was interesting about that. So when you set an out-of-system ball inside, okay, you are generally going to have three blockers. But what happens, and you, got, you might have to close your eyes and picture this, if you have three blockers, let's just hypothetically say you had two blockers. You have the middle blocker, and then you have the blocker that's going to block the left side attack, okay? If you have an out-of-system ball that's inside, the pin blocker that's blocking the left side is going to run into the middle blocker. And if they run into the middle blocker and the ball is set inside the middle blocker, like to the left of the middle blocker, then that left side blocker all of a sudden is not, an, is, is not a threat. So let me, let me repeat that just in case I lost you there, okay? So imagine, okay, imagine you're, you're the blocking team. You have the blocker that's blocking the left side attack, so in position two, and you have the middle in position three, okay? And the ball is being set out of system, and the middle is coming over, to block that ball, all right? And the player in position two is getting ready to block that ball. Now, if the ball is set a little far inside, then the, then the player in position two, if they're gonna try to transition to block that ball, they're gonna run into the middle. And if they run into the middle, guess what? They're all of a sudden not a blocking option. But if you set the ball a little further, closer to the left side blocker, then no matter what, they're, they're going to be an option. So you went from three blockers to one and a half. And, I think, and that was another interesting point they made that I never thought about, but that pin blocker will run into the middle. Unless the middle comes all the way over and gives the pin blocker space to close, then yeah, sure. But that has to happen. So you, you're putting yourself in a better position to score by putting it more inside. Okay, so that was, I thought that was a really, really interesting point. Um, the last point about the out-of-system hitting is you want to make sure that the last two steps of the attacker is inside the court. You do not want it to be outside the court. It's got to be inside the court, and basically it's what we talked about. We want to make sure that we're, you know, we're getting the ball well inside so we can make a play on it. Okay, um, a really cool drill I saw them do too that I thought was interesting was uh, when, you're, when it comes to training your pin attackers, they would set up cones on the court where they want the attackers to swing and score. You know, typical positions like deep one, deep five, and things like that. And the goal is to hit the cones, okay? But they one coach took it a step further, and I thought this was interesting, is once you hit the cone down, okay, you're fin you haven't finished the drill yet, you have to now hit the cone so it moves outside the court. So essentially, you're attacking the cones and driving the cones outside the court. And when the cones are officially outside the court, then you've accomplished the drill. I thought that was kind of unique. So it's not enough just to hit the cone down. You have to continue hitting the cone down until the cones are outside the court. 
And I thought that was pretty clever. I thought that was really creative. Uh, that's something I, I want to try in our gym as well. Um, they, uh, they also tried to emphasize, you know, especially on the opposite, don't try to swing line, okay? Try to swing inside the line. It's a little bit different there, okay? Don't try to hit the line. Try to hit inside the line so that you have a little bit more room for error and it's a better shot, okay? So that, I thought that was really cool. Um, let's see some other things too. They did, they did talk about the fact that, you know, 99% of the time, your pin attackers are going to swing and score. And your defense is ready for that 99% time where your attackers are going to swing and score. But they also have to have the 1% in their toolkit for attacking. And that is roll shot, tipping, doing things like that. Because when the deep, at certain points in the game, or it's, it ha it's 1% of the shot, so it does, it does happen. But at certain points in the game, you have to have the ability to go up for a swing and then change and tip and roll to get that 1% and score to you know be, be able to have a lot more in your toolkit than just making the, the, the sharp shot or the swing and things like that. Okay, so you got to make sure you have that in your arsenal and you do want to train it. Okay, um, one of the drills they were doing when it comes to swinging and training the attack, I thought this was really unique. So when they want to work on offense, okay, you want to work on offense, you want to work on your ability to, to get multiple touches offensively. I thought this was really unique. They would have, you know, you would do like a, a six on six or a five on six or whatever the case is, okay? One side is the offense side, one side is the defense side. And the way that they generated more touches for the offense side is by when the ball goes to the offense side, they pass, they set, they swing. And every time the other team gets a dig, they would free ball the, right over on the second ball. So imagine bump, set, spike. They get a dig, pop the ball up, and then the second contact, they just free ball it right over and get ready to play defense. So I really like that because it creates more rallies and it also gives them a little bit more of a realistic offensive look than if you were to just toss the ball to the setter, the setter sets, the attacker attacks, and then the next person goes. No, they continue getting multiple reps in that rally sequence. It, it also works on in-game rallies and, and, and being in that exhaustion that you're going to feel during that moment. And I thought that was a really cool way of continuing to work on offense, but working on it in a more intentional way, making it more game-like. You know, one of the things we're, I'm always trying to do in our gym is make it game-like. And that's a really easy way of working on offense and still continue making game like. Because yes, the defense is going to slow the ball down and they're probably going to get stops, but we can free, they can free ball it back over and we can continue working on it. So I really like this because it, 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 it actually gives your attackers more looks at a defense than they would normally get if it was just, you know, bump set, spike, toss over. Because then after they score or after they hit the ball, whether, whether the defense picks it up or not, it would just go to the next person. So now it forces your attackers to try to give them more emphasis to score, you know, and that, that's such a, it's a really, really great point that I thought um, I'm going to start implementing in my gym too. That just, it's just that subtle change of free balling it back over after a dig on the second contact. I thought that was really cool. Then um, this was an actual really interesting point by uh, the guru himself, Dan Lewis. And um, 
I actually love it. I'm gonna bring it back to my gym too. So he he uh, we got a chance to see him. So Dan Lewis, as I met, you've heard me talk about him in the past, and especially on last week's episode, he is the technical director for Canada Volleyball. He's the guru of tactical and technical things. You know, any any player in this country that has ever gotten trained by Dan Lewis will tell you that he humbled them right away. Doesn't matter if you're the best player in the, in the country or not. This guy is like the guru. So, anyways. So he works a lot with our, what we call next-gen athletes, the ones that are trying to make the national team. And we got a chance to sit and watch a, a typical practice. And he is so intentional about everything he does. And it was really interesting was, you know how sometimes when a player shanks a ball, the ball goes flying, and sometimes no one goes after it? It's kind of like, ah, you know, I know we're not going to get it. Forget about it. So what he said was interesting. He was like, I know it's gone, and I know they're probably not going to get it. But he wants to see them make the attempt to go get it, and then after the attempt is made, they can stop. Because we're training that reaction. We're training that intention. So when a ball is shank, he wants all his players to chase and then once they get outside the court, like outside the 9 by 9 court, then they can stop. So we're training the reaction. I thought that was interesting because you're always training that reaction. And, when, and then when you know you can't get it, yes, he doesn't want them to chase a ball that they're never going to get and it's gone and they don't and jump off a wall. They don't want to do that. But you're training the intention behind it. I thought that was really cool. And that's something that we're going to be doing in our gym as well. It's having that high expectations. Okay? Um. Another subtle change that I thought was interesting was with the libero and the player in position six. So as we know, the player in position six and the libero are beside each other. You know, player in position six, libero is in five. What I thought was interesting was the communication between the two. So when the libero is covering the hitter, so let's say, for example, there's a set to position four, left side. When the libero is covering that hitter, player six needs to get back. And the, it's the libero's job to tell player six to go back. Like say, hey, back, 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 I'm here. So that way player six can go back and get any of the balls that are ricocheted back there. Okay? Because sometimes a libero may dig the ball and won't have enough time to go and cover. And that's when player six goes and covers because they're not going to get attacked because it's the dug ball. Player six will go and cover and libero will take back. So the, the interchange between the player is uh, position six and libero, they need to communicate who's up and who's back. And libero isn't the one that normally does that. So they were putting an emphasis on libero communicating with six that they're up and then the position six is back. I thought that, that was that was really good to note. Um, talk about a couple other things. Middles. Okay, so middles. One of the things about middles uh, that was emphasized on when it comes to blocking is keeping their hands high. So they can slow the ball down when they're coming down from a block. Because generally middles are, are fairly tall. So when the middle jumps for a block, okay, if they mistimed it, if they're early, whatever, the they still want the middles on their way down to still keep their hands high. Because there's a chance they may touch the ball and slow it down and give the defense a chance to play it out. So keeping the middle's hands high. I thought that was interesting. So they, you know, you want to, you know, make sure that they they can slow things down. Um, they were really working with the middle split step, split step and go, or um, what they call it. I, 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 it is a split step, but there was another word they were calling it 
basically having the ability to, you know, as soon as a setter is about to release, have that slight hop. You're not even coming off the ground. It's a slight hop to give them a little bit of momentum to go in either direction as well as up. So they were, they were really working on that a lot at practice, and I thought that was interesting. Um, this is something I took away that I don't really do very often, and I, I need to do this more and more, and coaches, I recommend you doing this too, is uh, you know, a lot of the coaches, they'll, they'll have an iPad in practice or a notebook in practice, and they write things down that they're, ne- they're going to need to address. And it was such a, it was, it was more of a, of a reassurance because you know how sometimes you'll see something in practice and you're like, okay, I got to talk to that player about that. But you don't want to, you don't want to interrupt them now in the middle of a drill so they can get their reps. And then guess what happens? You forget it. You forget it. So they made a really in- interesting point, but write everything down. As soon as you see something that you want to address, that you want to address with a player, write it down so you don't forget it. Because it happens to me all the time. I'll see a bunch of things and I'm like, okay. And I, I, might, I might talk to one player and I'll, I'll see I'll talk to that player you know, in the second time around. And, and that you forget what you want to tell them or you move on to something else. So write things down in practice when they come. Because you definitely you want to make sure that you, know, you have that. Um, make sure... Middles as well, get repetitions out of three and four, like ball control out of three and four. Because sometimes they might short serves, you might have balls that just trickle over the net. And if a middle's never had experience in playing those balls, they're going to, the other teams can get a point. So making sure that middles have experience playing those trickled balls off the tape or those short balls that just come over, having, you know, being comfortable with that, position three, position four, practice. Middles have to practice. Okay. Um, what else did we do here? There was one other note here I had. Small setter, change backcourt to defend. OT, left side comes up for tips. Um, oh, yeah, this was interesting, actually. So when it comes to uh, defending, so if we know, okay, if you know that you have a small setter, and I thought, and I, and I, I've talked about this in the past, but I really like the way they explain this. If you know you have a small setter front court, then what you could do is you could change your defense for those three rotations where that setter is going to block, because what teams are going to be doing is they're going to try to go after that small setter, and what they're going to try to do is try to go over top. So they're going to try to swing line. That's what they're going to try to do. So if you know that, then right off the back, you know that the cross-court shot is probably not the shot that they're going to want to take. So with that being said, you can have the player in position one back up all the way and take the line shot. And you can have the player in position six come all the way over to take that shot right over the setter into that area. So, so basically, you're, play, you're having two players in and around area one. You got the player in position one who's going to take that line shot and you got the player in position six that's coming over to take that OT. <clears throat> and then Libero can fall in. And then the player in position four now, your left side, they're going to come all the way up and play the tips just in case that attacker decides to tip because they see all the defenders going back. Then that player in position four, they'll be responsible for playing those tips. So I thought that just, you know, we, 
we call like we I've done I've done different variations of this like rotational defense is another one that I won't get into on this episode but that's another way you can treat it to rotational defense uh, that's one other way you can do it um, but there's that's two ways of solving it you can either do rotational defense or you can do what I just described where you have the left side in position four come all the way over to take all the tips and that's all the tips by the way that's tips that are going short three as well as short one they're taking all that. And then the player in position one and six are going to play any all those over top shots. So that will help because they're not going for hands. They're going OT if you got a small setter on a mismatch on the left side. So that's that's kind of where you, you want to take that. So these are these were pretty much all my major takeaways uh, of the coaching symposium. And they're, they're small things, but they're small, tangible things that I believe you could, you can go in your gym and you can make, make a lot of differences. Um, just by, just by making just even a couple of these. Okay. So let's do a little quick recap here. <clears throat> so, uh, we talked about the setter spinning the ball to the setter. Okay. Spinning the ball, making sure they set with that spun ball, um, having them dig and then set a ball, dig to themselves and then set a ball. Okay expanding the digging zone we talked about players being comfortable expanding their digging zone you know being wide having their hands spread out so they can dig with one hand if needed okay we talked about the out of system ball being inside and a really great rationale is seeing that the pin blocker in position four will get will run into the middle <clears throat> minimizing a triple block that could that could be a potential situation that happens which is great because now you're only gonna have you know one and a half blockers instead of three, okay. Um, <clears throat> oh, I don't think I talked about this actually. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in VNL, and I thought was really interesting, was a modified spin serve. Now this is high level stuff, so if you're coaching low level, don't worry about this. But I thought this was really cool. Is we've traditionally trained the side spin. Basically, you toss the ball over your hitting shoulder and use your wrist to develop the side spin. That's normally how you do it. But what I saw a lot of servers do was toss the ball over the opposite shoulder. So if you're right-handed, and imagine a right-handed player has the ball in their hand and they're tossing the ball in front of them but over their left shoulder and then trying to hit it straight up. Now that was interesting because by just the toss now, and even if you hit the ball straight up, you will be generating side spin. So just a little bit of a subtle difference there, but I thought that was interesting. So that's something that I haven't played with yet, but I'm going to look more into. <clears throat> uh, we talked about uh, training hitters with the cones. I thought it was really creative by after you hit the cone down in the area you're trying to swing to, then you have to try to swing and hit the cone to get it outside the court. I thought that was really cool. Uh, let's see. You... The 1%, so we talked about being able to hit that 1%, so 99% of the shots are going to be, you know, your hard swings, but the 1%, the tips, the rolls, you know, being able to have your players do that, know when to do it, um, because those are crucial points that can happen, or that can, you know, help you out. Um, working on offense, I thought a really unique way was, you know, if you're doing a 6 on 6 drill, or a 5 on 6, or a 4 on 5, whatever you do, basically the offensive side it's going to get continuous ball. So when offense swings, the defensive team gets gets a dig, for example, wants to get a dig. The second contact, they're free balling it back over. 
So you're still getting multiple rally touches in this situation. Not rally in terms of digs, but free balls are coming back so you can bump, hit, and get the ball down. I thought that was a really cool way of getting more gameplay simulation type in addition to working on offense. And it's also a little more intentional. Um, I love the, the point that Dan Lewis made about shank balls. <clears throat> we want to train the intention of chasing, even though you know it may be an unrealistic chase, just training the reaction and training the intention. So they go, and then once it's outside the court, they can stop. thought it was really interesting about the communication between libero and player in position six. When the libero is moving up to cover, letting the player in position six know that they're there so they stay back. So that way you never have a situation where you run into the fact where the libero and the player in position six are both up. So if you see that on film, you see that, you want to make sure that you address it because that, because that means they're not communicating. So the player in position six should only be up if the libero is out and cannot cover. But if the libero is covering, the player in position six is out. So making sure that they communicate that and understand that. Okay. <clears throat> we talked about middles when they jump, keep the hands high on the way down so that if in the event that they can get a touch on the ball if they were early, whatever the case is. We talked about the middle, working on the split step to get out faster. Um, the need to write things down in practice. How many times, coaches, have we forgot things that we wanted to tell our players because uh, yeah, we, we have so much going on in practice? Write it down right away so you can address it later, Okay. Uh, working on middles, uh, passing out of three and four because you never know when those balls trickle over the net. Want to have our middles comfortable taking those balls. And then when you got the small setter or the mismatch in any way, altering your defense to play the OT. Yeah, be intentional about your defense. Play the OT instead of playing a sharp cross when you know where there's a mismatch there. And that way your defense can give yourself a shot at hopefully getting that ball up. All right. So that's it for me. If you have any questions, hey, do me a favor, reach out. Reach out on Instagram. Let me know how how these how you're finding these episodes. You're finding the pod. I've been I'm getting a I'm getting a lot of great feedback lately. Actually, a lot of people are reposting some of the episodes, and I and I really appreciate that. It's, it's nice to repost them. One to help grow the show, but also to let me know that you know you're actually finding some value in this and it's helping you. So really, really appreciate that. Yeah, my Instagram, Brian Singh underscore Coach B. You know, reach out anytime and. Uh, I'd love to connect with coaches all around there. Um, you know, I got my coaching some my my own coaching clinic coming up on August 12th and 13th. So looking forward to that. Get registered for that. Um, and then yeah, that's it. All right, thank you guys so much for tuning in to another episode of the Volleyball by Design podcast. I'll see you guys next week. Take care. All right, cue the music. Look, are you at the stage you want to be in your volleyball journey? How would it feel to get clarity on your training? And instead of taking months to get better, you could improve in weeks, if not days. When I was a young coach and player, I felt this way all the time. The truth is, after I got some great advice on how to be efficient, my learning curve grew exponentially. Let me show you how to be more efficient and effective in this game. I invite you to check out CoachBTraining.com for more resources that you can use to take your game to the next level. I look forward to helping you reach your volleyball goals.